Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. So thank you for downloading this podcast. We know that there is a lot to digest right now in the current moment regarding the coronavirus. And here at the Urban Institute, we've done a lot of thinking about where we think we can add to the discourse. And here's where we landed. We want to make sure that even as we're thinking about our own personal safety and security and that of our families, that we're also considering the effects of this pandemic on the most vulnerable members of society. So for the foreseeable future on this podcast stream, we're going to be doing something a little different. We're going to be focusing on how the pandemic will impact families and communities in critical ways, our jobs, our economy, our health, food security, our education. And we're going to do so with an eye squarely on what it means for the most vulnerable Americans among us. We've been hustling to get this work moving. Our first episode just dropped yesterday and focused on what housing insecurity looks like in the time of coronavirus. Today is our second topic, focused on economic insecurity. Now, the pandemic is already having dramatic effects on our economy, and over time, there will be widespread and deep impacts for just about everyone. But those who are more vulnerable economically will be impacted the most. To get a sense of the challenge, I spoke with Donald Marin. Donald has served on the President's Council of Economic Advisors for past presidents and was the acting director of the Congressional Budget Office. I spoke with him on Tuesday to get a sense of how he viewed this moment. So I've worked on economic policy issues here in Washington since 2002, so I guess 18 years or so, which included a stint in the White House during the early stages of the financial crisis. And so I am experiencing some flashbacks as we go through this, particularly with the rapidity with which things change. A week or two ago, we had a growing sense of unease and we knew there were problems and we knew there would be economic shocks. But then the magnitude of them and the speed of them has uh, accelerated very rapidly. The velocity of change we're seeing right now truly is incredible. Take a second and think back to what your world looked like even 10 days ago. And even though there are some similar elements to past economic challenges, we're basically headed into an unprecedented world. I also talked to Howard Gleckman, senior fellow in the Urban's Brookings Tax Policy Center on Tuesday about where we're headed. The most important thing to keep in mind about this is, is we are heading into an economic slowdown that isn't normal. Usually an economic slowdown is either driven by some collapse in consumer demand or as what happened in 2008, 2009, some financial crisis. This one is being driven by something very different. It's being driven by a disease and by fear of a disease. And because the cause of the slowdown is so different, I think it requires us to think differently about the solutions. So like many of you, I've been thinking about what kind of historical examples might help us guide the way. Like, are there any analogs that we should be looking to? Here's Howard. Nothing like this has ever happened in the modern U.S. economy. The only example that any of us can look to is the flu pandemic of 1918. But in those days, there was no fiscal stimulus. There was no Federal Reserve so things didn't work the way they do now. And here's Donald. 
So 9-11 is an interesting analog in that it clearly shut down parts of the U.S. economy, but much smaller parts, right? So it basically shut down air transportation and it led to a brief shutdown of parts of the financial sector. But you recall at the time, you know, the malls were open, restaurants were open, people were encouraged to go out and spend. And so much of normal everyday economic activity was still available. But there was, you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. There was concern. And obviously, we have that today. But again, you know, the thing that's special today is it's widespread, it's everywhere, and we're, we're shutting down large parts of the economy. And it's the scope of change that's so extraordinary about this moment. So obviously, it's still early days and still remains to be seen. But in, you know, in large parts of America, we are kind of shutting down the parts of the economy that involve people gathering. So schools, restaurants, bars, any kind of event, many kinds of travel, right? So you see airlines are cutting back, Amtrak is cutting back, public transportation in Washington, D.C. is cutting back. Just, you know, things are falling off a cliff. And as a result, people are going to see, you know, severe income shocks. Workers are going to, you know, face fewer hours. They're going to be furloughed. They're going to be job losses. You see business owners suddenly see that their revenues disappear. are going to have to struggle to make payrolls. It's just very, very steep and severe shock. So where we find ourselves today is an unusual shock where we basically need to slow down the engine of the economy for a period of time. It would be nice if it were just a pothole, but that's not going to be the right metaphor here. It's a much larger hole than that. But basically, we need to drive down the capacity of the economy because certain kinds of economic activity just don't make sense in this environment. We need to figure out a way to help people get through that when their incomes suddenly evaporate. We need to figure out a way to ensure that then businesses and producers are going to be in a position to start up again once we get beyond this shock. But for now, unfortunately, families are going to bear the brunt. So I think the main thing to focus on is that large numbers of people are about to see their incomes plummet, hopefully temporarily, but they're going to see them plummet. Some of them will be able to take advantage of existing programs like unemployment insurance. But those programs have limits. They don't reach everybody who loses their job, for example. They only replace a fraction of income that people have. And so you're going to have a lot of people who either miss uh, the safety net programs entirely or only get partially supported by them who are going to face significant needs. And so, you know, and we're seeing now, you know, policy debate about what are the mechanisms to try to get financial support out to a much broader array of people who find themselves in trouble with this particular shock? So when the cause of this economic shock is a disease and when people see their incomes plummet instantaneously, what are the right types of policy responses? So in the short run, you know, obviously the, the key set of responses is first to do the public health things that are necessary, both in terms of funding public health and in doing the social distancing that experts believe is necessary in order to, to, to combat spread of the virus. The second set of things is going to be to make sure that traditional safety net programs are backstopped and strengthened so that they can do what they're supposed to do. The first bill that Congress passed related to the coronavirus has taken some of these steps. It makes some expansions to unemployment insurance. It provides more funding to Medicaid, which provides uh, health services to low-income people. It introduces some paid leave, provides some additional food assistance. You know, so those sorts of things are kind of step one. Step two is then to look out at all the people who are experiencing income loss 
and think about what the best way to assist them is. Now, for step two, we're in the middle of a big debate about what will best help people experiencing income loss. And Congress is thinking about directly sending money. There's another proposal out there at the moment just to uh, provide money directly to people, perhaps to everybody in America or perhaps to people who have incomes below some level or otherwise, you know, designated as being particularly important to get money to. And there's a lot of discussion about how exactly you would do that, how much it should be, how long it would go. But, you know, the obviously benefit of that is it would put money in people's pockets. And, you know, the challenge is it would be incredibly expensive. And there's an issue of how long we'd be able to maintain that. You think about things like a, like a government payment to households, and it is probably more productive to think about it as a support, as a temporary support to them than it is to think about it as an economic stimulus. It will have some stimulus effect, but the most valuable thing about it is that it's going to just help people keep their heads above water, which right now is really, really important. They're scared. A lot of people don't have income coming in. They're afraid they're going to get sick and die. Having some additional cash in their pocket so at least they can make the rent is really important. The nature of the proposals right now vary in size and how they would be administered, and they'd be costly, but... The cost of these programs is not as compelling is an issue as it has sometimes been in the past. Interest rates are incredibly low. It's easy for Treasury to finance these things. Obviously, there's still there's still a real cost that someone's bearing from providing those resources. But, you know, fiscal issues are relatively in the backseat at the moment uh, compared to at other moments uh, we've, when we've been considering major economic policy moves. Howard says there's good reason to target these payments to lower income people. But we know from past experience that if the government gives money to high-income people, high-income people are very likely to just keep it, just put it in the bank. They won't spend it because they have plenty of other cash. They don't need that additional $1,000. Similarly, we know from past experience that if you give $1,000 to low- and moderate-income people, they absolutely will spend it. They may have less opportunity to spend it than they usually do, but they still will spend it. So it's very important that the government not waste money by giving it to people who are just going to bank it. It's just a windfall to them. It doesn't do anything to stimulate the economy. But the administration of a universal program is much easier. Are there ways that government could recapture some of those dollars in the future? Here's Donald. The one thing I would note is that if we decide to do a universal benefit, that there are ways to then target it after the fact. And then in particular, if we give money to people, one option would be to treat it as taxable so that next year when people are filing their taxes, they include it as income. And then that would give us the opportunity to ensure that people who have low incomes and suffered this year don't pay very much because they'll be in a low tax bracket, whereas people who are doing fine and are well off will pay you know, a normal marginal tax rate on that and the federal government will get some of it back. Howard sees some benefit to this approach as well. But Donald's idea is a particularly interesting one. What he's saying is tax the income. So don't worry about it. Just give it to everybody. And then next year when people pay their taxes, they'll count this as income. For very low-income people, it won't make any difference because they won't pay taxes anyway. And for very high-income people, they'll have to give back 37% of it or whatever it, whatever it happens to be at the, at the, 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 the margin of their, of their tax rate. So that's an easy way to do it. And, and In other words, don't worry about who gets it. Just throw it all out there, but make it taxable income. 
At the moment, it looks like a strong likelihood that some form of direct payments to families will pass Congress and become law. Another area that will be critical for policymakers to think about is how to restart business activity. Here's Donald. The second thing I would recommend is to think about how we make sure that otherwise healthy businesses are still around and still able to open their doors two months, three months, four months from now, whenever the time is appropriate. And that's going to require careful thought about individual sectors and individual types of businesses. You know, the easiest example are restaurants, right? Your favorite neighborhood restaurant that operated a perfectly good business for the last, whatever, you know, 10 years, probably ought to be around in four months or three months or two months. But they're going to go through a very severe shock. And so we want policies that are going to help support them get through this difficult time. The president has proposed expanding the lending authority of the Small Business Administration. That's worth considering. We've seen other countries step up and provide loans to small businesses. Australia is doing that. The United Kingdom is doing that. I think that's a very important thing to do. For big businesses, the prescriptions are likely different. When we get to larger businesses, there's going to be an issue about how to do the triaging right. Large businesses often have other financial options. They don't need the federal government as a backstop. Some of them are going to need to redesign themselves in the wake of this crisis. Think about businesses that are in the oil and natural gas sector, for example. They're facing a significant shock at the moment that is not related to the virus, is related to conditions in worldwide oil and fossil fuel markets. And there's no particular reason I see off the top of my head why they need support uh, to get through this period. Similar issues with, you know, large publicly traded corporations that have the ability to issue equity or issue debt and finance themselves through traditional methods rather than the federal government. However, there may be individual sector industry cases in which the, the, the challenge is so severe and capital dries up that there might be an argument for, for the government to step in. View that as a topic that's going to be debated a lot in coming weeks, but it definitely needs to be thought about carefully. Donald says that in a perfect world, what you want to do is sort of shut down parts of the economy for a little while and then just start them back up. And so we're going to want through policy and through businesses supporting one another to be in a situation where, you know, all the healthy businesses that were operating perfectly reasonably a week ago and ought to be operating perfectly reasonably two months from now, we want to make sure they're still around. And whatever it takes to keep them in place so we can just reboot the economy is incredibly important. A final point is that perhaps the most powerful economic policy solutions right now help to solve both economic and public health goals. My own view is that where the policy has to be more robust is not fiscal stimulus and it's not monetary stimulus, it's public health. At its bottom, this is a public health crisis and the solution is going to be a public health solution. We have an economic slowdown and everybody looks at the economists and says, well, what do we do? They take these ideas off the shelf. They're the usual ideas and they will be beneficial. But in the end, the only way we are going to resolve this crisis is we're going to have to address the pandemic. When the pandemic stops, the rest of the economy will take care of itself. But if the pandemic doesn't stop, there's nothing we can do to keep the economy going. And Howard sees paid sick leave as a good example. One hand, what it does is it provides income to low-income people who need it. On the other hand, it's an incentive for them to stay home and not bring their coronavirus to work. And that is a really important public health choice. So that's a good example of how you can accomplish both things. 
And I think there probably are a lot of others like that in the public health realm. But ultimately, policymakers will need to be incredibly nimble in the weeks to come to address the upcoming challenges. The big picture point is just that this is a rapidly evolving situation without a lot of good precedence. And so situations like that reward a certain degree of nimbleness. And so, you know, doing your best on the policy front, doing your best on the personal front, but then recognizing that two days from now or a week from now or two weeks from now, we may learn things that make us change our views substantially. That's, I think, certainly been the evolution over the past couple of weeks. And it would not surprise me at all if that were true over coming weeks as well. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things to remember. One, we're in the midst of an unprecedented economic shock in which entire sectors of the economy are grinding to a halt. We can look back to history as a guide, but really, we're in uncharted territory. Two, policymakers can respond in two key ways, strengthen existing safety net programs and provide direct assistance to people whose incomes are plummeting quickly and drastically. And three, the most powerful economic solutions will move quickly and address both public health goals and loss of income. The sooner we stop this pandemic, the sooner we can get the economy moving again. So that's our show. Big thank you to Donald Marin and Howard Gleckman. You can read more from them on our show notes page at www.urban.org slash critical value. And thanks to you, Critical Value listeners. We'd truly appreciate it if you took a minute to share the show with some other smart policy peoples and perhaps leave a rating on iTunes. It helps others to find the show. And thanks to producers Jacinth Jones and Katie Smith and to our sound editor, Riley Byrne from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. And like our previous show, I thought it might be cool to peel back the curtain a little bit and give a sense of how us researchers are handling this change. And then we talked upon this just a little bit at the beginning, but as a parent of a six-year-old, how's it going? And uh, what's your strategy to survive? It's fun to have our little boy around. Uh, love Charlie. The high points of the day are when we do the Zoom conference call with his fellow kindergartners, uh, and they have their little conference. Like many parents, we aspire to provide an enriching environment in which there's lots of learning and crafts making and things through the day. But I will confess that uh, there's also a lot of uh, YouTube and Disney Plus uh, in the lineup so far. On behalf of the Critical Value team and my two kids who are now podcast co-producers. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. (laughs) And thank you to enjoy the podcast. (laughs) Ha, <laughs> ha,